With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You're listening to the Golf Unfiltered Podcast, your source for in-depth interviews with the biggest names, brands, and personalities in golf. Our mission, to keep you informed and help you enjoy the game even more. And now, the owner and host of the Golf Unfiltered Podcast, Adam Fonseca. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Golf Unfiltered Podcast. I am your host, as always, Adam from GolfUnfiltered.com. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Golf Unfiltered. Send me an email, golfunfiltered at gmail.com. Hope you guys had a great Thanksgiving holiday. We are recording this before the holiday. There's going to be a lot of great football that we're going to watch. And how about the Monday night football game last night? I'm recording this on a Tuesday between the uh, L.A. Rams, almost said St. Louis, and the Kansas City Chiefs. Was that the preview of the Super Bowl or what? If it is... No other teams in the league stand a chance. 104 points scored in that game. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to give a few shout-outs to our friends that make the Golf Unfiltered podcast possible. First and foremost, our friends over at the Hacker's Paradise, for those of you listening to this on the THP Radio app. Our friends over at Cleveland and Srixon Golf are keeping us in the game and on the golf course with all of their great golf equipment. And last but certainly not least, our friends over at BudgetGolf.com. Check out the sales they have going on now before the holiday season. Buy your your friends, your family, something that they've always wanted from BudgetGolf.com. Well, folks, we have a great guest today. Peter Kessler needs no introduction. Those of you who have watched golf for more than 10 minutes know the name of Peter Kessler. He was commonly called the voice of golf. He was also at HBO with HBO Sports. He's produced multiple memorable sport productions, episodes, shows, you name it, he's done it. Peter has recently had a little bit of a resurgence on social media, being highly critical not only of today's golf coverage, but media in general, not shying away from naming names, as well as also getting involved in a golf ball distance debate with none other than Brandel Chambly. Peter joins us today for a pretty good amount of time. We actually go a little bit over our normal 30-minute time frame. We have a great discussion. We have a lot of different topics that we covered. And I hope that you'll enjoy this episode with Mr. Peter Kessler. Welcome back, listeners, to the Golf Unfiltered podcast. And as I mentioned in the introduction, I am extremely excited to welcome on today's guest. You will be hard-pressed to find a more recognizable name and voice in golf than Mr. Peter Kessler. Peter, thanks so much for taking some time today. Oh, well, I'm delighted to be with you. You know, when you first uh, approached me on social media last week, I got this whole slew of direct messages on Twitter and on Facebook and some people who knew my email and everybody said, oh, this is great. The guy really knows what he's talking about. So I'm just delighted to be on the show and I've heard fantastic things about you and I know that your audience is growing and people are saying just the kind of things you want them to say. So good for you. And I'm just delighted to be with you. Oh, that's that's very kind of you to say. And listeners, thanks for reaching out to uh, to Peter, I guess. So thanks for that. 
You know, Peter, having the chance to speak with you is fantastic. And I have to say, just right off the bat, I was a huge fan, as many were, of Golf Talk Live. And my favorite interview that I ever saw you do was in 1997, when you were at Jack Nicholas's house. You were wearing a tie, and he called over two of his, I assume, crew, or cronies, I'll call them, and they cut off your necktie. Could, could you walk me through how that must have felt? Well, sure. It was actually fantastic. And it's funny that you bring up that moment because it's the only moment out of 1,300 shows that I did at the Golf Channel where I didn't have control of the situation. So it was very interesting for me. And so, of course, what happened was normally we would do all of our shows at the Golf Channel, but Jack asked if we'd come to his house. And, of course, we said yes. And it's a couple hours drive for everybody. And all my guys got there early and set everything up. And so Jack had arranged with one of my guys and one of his guys in the second segment mm. that he was going to interrupt me and that he was going to take charge of the show and that they should come over and each hold one of my arms down. So <laughs> we start the second segment and I'm as usual in a tie and, and actually I had just done a clothing deal the day before with a place in town. So here we are, it's, it's, it's we're at Jack's house we we shoot we, we start to shoot the show, and of course it was live, and in the second segment, Jack says, you know, I'm looking at you, and you look very uncomfortable, and you must not know the rule at the Nicholas house, and I said, well, no, what is that? So that's when I started to lose control, because I had no idea where this was going, mm-hmm. and he said, well, you know, at the Nicholas house, we don't, we don't wear ties, and at that moment, these two guys came over and held down my arms, and Jack pulls out a pair of scissors from underneath his 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 thigh, really. They were hidden on the couch between his thigh and the cushion. And he pulls them out, and he leans forward, and he just starts to cut off my tie. So he finally finishes. And actually, I was delighted because he was dressed quite casually, and I would always be happy to take the tie off. So the tie came off, and um, and then we sort of got back down to business. And he made a little joke saying all of his guys were in on it. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to leave it right there. And I'm just going to move it along because it was a really cool moment. And there's no reason to analyze how it happened because everybody who's watching has figured it out. And I've now know the information because Jack gave it to me. So the next day I go back to the place that I've gotten the jacket and tie from. So I give the guy the jacket and he says, well, where's the tie? I said, well, we had a little thing happen. He said, no, I watched the show. I want the tie. I said, I want this. I want the signed tie. I want to hang it on my wall. And I said, well, how are you going to get it off of my wall to put it on your wall? <laughs> so he never got the tie back. And I think that may have been the end of the clothing deal because then they started to get nervous. Things would come back torn and tattered. But it was a wonderful night because I, I got Jack relaxed very, very quickly. The first two questions I asked him were deeper than he was ready to go. So I just switched gears. I could tell that wasn't going to work. So, Because I had said something to him like, you know, you can kind of decide your own personality when you're growing up. You know, at some point in your teenage years, you realize you have choices about the way that you're going to sort of present yourself to the world. Are you going to be a nice guy? Are you going to be an angry guy? Are you going to be a balanced guy? Are you going to have the characteristic that's most important to have as an adult, I think, and that's flexibility, the ability to listen, the ability to change your mind, the ability to do something else, the ability to not dig your heels in. And so, you know, I always thought that 
flexibility was the key thing. And so I said to Jack, basically, so everybody decides kind of their own personality to a certain extent. How did you sort of come up with you? And he had no idea what I was talking about whatsoever. So I said, okay, that's it for that stuff. And I always had contingency plans for every show I had. If something didn't go the way I wanted, I had another uh, option. If, if, if a question could elicit five different answers, I usually could guess which was the one I was going to get, and then I was most prepared for that response. That happened to me many times. But with Jack, we just switched gears. Then I realized I got him really comfortable. And then I said to him at one point before the tie-cutting incident, you know, you and your dad used to go in and see Bobby Jones all the time. So there's your dad sitting with the two greatest players who ever lived at that point. Did he think by osmosis somehow he too would now become a good player? And he threw his head back and he laughed and we're off and running. And uh, so it turned out to be a fantastic evening. And Jack and I have remained friends. I get their Christmas card every year. I just wrote to him and said, you know, if you people have any more children and any more grandchildren, a great chance grandchildren, unless you lose weight, there's not going to be any room for you on the front of your Christmas card. So, <laughs> you know, we exchanged stuff on Twitter. I was in Morocco with Jack. I'll tell you a quick story. And he was there to design golf courses, and I was there to play in the amateur part of the King Hassan tournament. And so one night we're over at the Prince's Palace, the Royal Palace, and he's got a caviar room. And it's like 10 feet deep and make 20 feet long. And there's a huge table that's set up the entire length of the room, a 20-foot kind of a picnic table. And it's covered with a beautiful white cloth and six humongous straw baskets. As far as you can open your arms, that's how big the baskets were. And they were tall. And they had a plastic liner, and they were all filled with caviar. So you had six different kinds of caviar, and you knew they were going to be great because it's the, you know, the royal prince of Morocco was serving it in his caviar room. So Jack and I go in, and the way it was supposed to work is you would go to one of the six baskets where nobody was now getting their caviar and get some caviar and leave. Well, we didn't do that. We went to the first guy, got caviar, and the little blinis, and they had the onions in both parts of the egg. I mean, it was hilarious. Hmm. So then Jack and I just went to the second guy. So we go through all six guys when you're only supposed to go through one. <laughs> so we look at the we, – we get to the end of the line, and we see the exit, and we go, my God, there's so many people in line. So Jack goes, follow me. So he leans back against the interior retaining wall and slides to his left so we're working back towards the entrance then he introduces himself to the first person in line and says oh how do you do i'm jack nicholas nobody had any idea who we might be and we cut in line anyway so then they came to throw us out so just before they threw us out the, a guy comes up to me and says his royal highness will see you now and jack said what about me i'm jack nicholas and the guy said to him I'm sure that's a very nice thing to be, sir. And off I went. <laughs> that's a fantastic story. You know, Peter, it's funny because you always had that knack of just making people feel comfortable as you touched on. And a lot of it was because of the flexibility that you speak of. Do you feel that that's missing from today's interviewers? Well, I don't see anybody actually doing doing the craft anymore. You know, if you think back to people who you know, who were good conversationalists 
as opposed to calling them interviewers, which is kind of a limiting term because good conversationalist really has to be a tremendous and, and, and wide-ranging actor in terms of the gifts that you bring to the table. And so, you know, you think of people like Mike Wallace, you know, and you think about people like uh, uh, Barbara Walters, who, you know, she always went for the crying thing, but she was good at her craft and she was comfortable. Now, in those cases, you know, they had 9,000 writers and they had we- meetings for weeks and all sorts of stuff. I just figured mine out on my back porch. And then I would call into my producer, Lee Siegel, and say, hey, Lee, in the first segment with tonight's guest, could you make this graphic? And then the second segment, could you have this shot on tape and I'll call for it and we'll go over it. So the way we constructed our shows was really two people. One night I was having dinner with Frank Cherkinian, who, of course, invented, you know, producing golf on television in 1958 and then the Masters starting in 1960 mm-hmm. till he lost his job in 96. And at dinner one night, he said, you know, if I had been at the Golf Channel when you started, he said you would have had a staff of like 12 people and writers and advisors and all this stuff. He said, so how many did you have? And I said, none. He said, what do you mean none? He said, well, who did the research? I said, well, I did the research. He said, well, who wrote the questions? I said, well, I wrote the questions. He said, well, who produced it? I said, well, so we went through the whole thing. He said, how could you do all of that? How can you be on both sides of the camera? I said, well, at first I decided what it should look like. And then I went on the other side of the camera to make it look like I wanted it to look like. And so in my case, you know, I didn't, I didn't, there was not like a team. I just had my guy. And, um, you know, and you look at any television program on that there is, you look at Bill Marshall, he has 97 writers for the five minutes. He reads the jokes off camera and the jokes are terrible and he's not a good performer and I can't watch it and he's not flexible. And so I don't see anybody right now who who understands the craft of trying to present a fascinating hour of television i don't see anybody actually attempting it so there's that and i don't see anybody who would be capable of doing it the only person in all of golf that i could see handling a chat show that's on tv now would be amanda balionis mm-hmm. i think she's the best person on tv I don't think there's anybody really even close to her. And I understand her. I've never met her, but I understand her as well as I understand me. I know exactly what's going on in her head. I know exactly what her gifts are. I know exactly what her strengths are. I know exactly she knows what's going on. I know there's nobody in her ear telling her what to ask because she's smarter than anybody in the truck. So she could do a chat show. But I would say nobody else is capable of it. And I would say the Faraday show, well, it really isn't anything at all, is it? I mean, you know, it's a complete nonsense. It's a contrivance. He's uncomfortable. He's not a good interviewer. Not everybody's good at everything, pretty much, except for me. I proved to be really good at every single thing that I've done in media. Not everybody can do everything in media. It's just the way it works out. I got more gifts than other people got, so I was able to do more things. But Faraday shouldn't be interviewing anybody. He doesn't know how to do it. He's been doing it a long time. He's never figured it out. The guests are tragic. I mean, each one you see when they have Steve Pate on and you go, Steve Pate, you must be kidding me. I remember sitting with Sean Connery once and somebody said to him, you know, is Peter a good interviewer? And he said, good interview. He's not an interviewer. He's one of the greatest actors that ever lived. And he happens to be a golf savant. And he said, look, he said, I had Goldfinger and Pussy Galore. 
He says he's got Larry freaking Ziegler, and it's live. <laughs> you try to make that interesting. You try that on live, dude. And then he called them a really bad uh, series of words, which is why Sean had been kicked off of almost every golf course in, in the world. <laughs> and, uh, and the conversation continued from there. And, of course, I was beaming because Sean called me a great actor and a golf savant. And we'd already spent a whole week together talking about acting, and he figured out every single thing I did. It was so great. And I, he said things to me about my preparation that I never told anybody. And he figured pretty much every one of them out. And I said, how did you know that? And he said, who do you think you're talking to? He said, I'm also one of the greatest actors that ever lived. And so the first day that we got together, I had been told, because I was going to spend a week with him, I had been told by our mutual friend who invited me, don't bring up. James Bond. No matter what you do, do not bring up James Bond at all in any way whatsoever. He just leaves. He gets up from the table. He leaves the golf course. Don't bring it up. So the first morning, I'm sitting in the coffee room, and Sean, who I had not yet met, walks in, and we're alone. And he blew smoke at me for like the biggest fan I ever had. It was completely insane. I never got a word in. (laughs) He used to tape my shows. He he asked me questions about certain scenes. I mean, he really like watched the work, and so. 20 minutes end, it ends, and the other two guys come in, and we go to play a practice round, and Sean and I are in a cart. So we, we hit our drives, and 20 feet after we got in the cart, I turned to him and said, so, double O, who was the greatest chick of them all? And he said, Ursula Andress, and that's where we started. So, like, we're on the 13th hole, and we're, stuck, we're talking about women, and I'm asking him about certain scenes, and he's asking me about certain techniques on the other side of the camera because he got it as an actor, but he wasn't a director or a writer, so he was always curious about that part of it. So we're, we're, we pull up near a green, and the other cart pulls up just to our right. So Sean is in the passenger seat. So I knew he needed a wedge, and I was going to grab it out of the bag for him. So I said, hey, double O, which wedge do you want? And the host looks over at me like, are you out of your mind? And Sean looks at him and, and sees the whole thing and goes, uh, excuse me, Peter is my peer. Hmm. He can call me anything he wants. But you guys, you guys either call me sir or you call me Sean Connery. You you don't get nicknames with me. You want to be my peer, figure out a career. So it was fantastic. So we and he was the greatest 18 that ever lived. He always made fives. He was really good from 50 yards and in. You know, from 50 yards, he could always leave himself like 20 feet. So you knew he was going to two putt for his bogey and sometimes he would make par. You know, Nateen's supposed to shoot 93, but he was shooting 87. And two years in a row, we won gross in that, and he pretty much carried us on the net. Fantastic. I've heard stories of Sean Connery as far as how good he He's basically a stick. I mean, as you mentioned, especially, you know, the best 18 you've ever seen. And, Peter, it's funny because you talk a little bit about the current landscape of golf media. And, you know, in recent weeks and months you've been uh, highly critical of golf media just as you were in your in your previous response about the current folks who have the microphones in front of them and I, you know i have to say a lot of the the current golf telecast formats are just extremely dry in my mind i imagine that you would agree and, and if so what would you do to make the telecast a little bit better well it would really help if you had people on tv who actually had the skill set to do it. It's the craziest sport because it's the only one that I know of that you can like sort of bring anybody who's mildly affiliated with the game 
in any capacity that has nothing to do with live television and then put them on television. It's complete insanity. Take a look here. Here's an example. Jaime Diaz, one of the great golf writers of all time, deep, introspective, thoughtful, long journeys on paper, really great stuff, really thinks things through, comes up with ideas. Then they say to him, okay, now you're going to be on television, and what you're going to do on television is you're going to comment very quickly on the ball, or you're going to comment quickly on this new rule change. That's not what he does for a living. It's a completely different skill set. When you're on television, it has it's exactly the opposite set of skills that you need to be a writer. You're a writer, you're in a dark room with the door closed alone and the landline off the hook so you can do your work. You're on television, there's a light on in the camera and people are watching. It's a completely different deal. He's used to long-form writing. This is supposed to be short-form answers where from the hip, you shoot quickly and you shoot accurately and, and, and you shoot in a way that nobody's ever done it before and you come up with stuff that you've never heard before. Well, he's not capable of doing that. So the first problem is all of the people who are doing these shows don't have the skill set. It doesn't fall out of the sky. For some reason, because you're not bringing a toolkit to a set where there's cameras, so that you can do brain surgery on somebody. Since there's no toolkit, oh, well, this just must be easy. You just show up and whatever happens, happens. Nothing in life works that way. It doesn't just fall out of the sky. There are some people who are naturally gifted, but it's, it's less than five. And Amanda is somebody that I would put on that list. She totally gets it. I could put her into basically any situation have a 15-minute talk with her before the show about what we ought to do together and basically let her run. There isn't anybody else I would do that with. I mean, Peter Jacobson in person, you know, who's now, you know, calling shots on the golf course, is in person a very funny, interesting guy and fast and, and sharp and witty and he's got the knife out and he's a pleasure to deal with. Well, you watch him on television, you're pretty sure it's the eulogy at some guy's funeral. I mean, it is deadly. It's it's monotone. And he never tells you anything that you want to know that you can't see. And when they show him, he's sitting in a little booth watching the television, mm -hmm. like you're watching the television. He doesn't know any more than you do. So he says, well, I think this moves a little left. Yeah, because he'd been freaking sitting all day. Of course it moves a little left. He's watched the same putt 40 times. <laughs> so it's funereal. It's just awful. So you, the people who are doing the work are not generally qualified to do the work. And gifted people with a natural skill set who understand how to let their gifts run free, who know how to prepare, who know what the audience wants, I would say there really isn't anybody but Amanda right now in all of golf doing it in any way. Look at Dan Hicks, Diarrhea Dan. <laughs> I mean, you know, they're playing the Tour Championship. I've got the sound off because I can't watch otherwise, and I've already recorded it because I can't deal with the commercials. And so you're fast-forwarding through everything, and now you have to fast-forward through the book reading and the fairway and with Bryson and Jordan having some kind of a complete psychotic meltdown on the golf course, and then they bring out the book for the green. That doesn't tell you anything. If the pin is one foot different from what your book says, Every single putt is completely different. It's a total nonsense. And so, you know, by the time they get to anything, you know, you could absolutely blow your brains out. And so 
you know, you have situations where it's just largely unwatchable. The announcers are terrible. The blimp is an intrusion. It's noisy. It's never accurately picked up a golf shot ever once since I've been watching the blimp on television. It always does the same thing. It shoots from above. So when you play golf, there is no shot in golf where you look down from a cloud. So Mm -hmm. there's no perspective. So you might see the ball, and you might see a row of trees on either side and some grass that it's going over, but you don't know what hole it is. You don't have any depth perception. You don't have any perspective. And then, of course, the blimp gets to the green, and it always overshoots the green, and then they always back it up to show that the ball landed on the front of the green. Really, after all these years, you guys can't figure out how to get rid of that thing or get a cameraman who can actually follow the ball? It's like amateur hour. I mean, it's like when I was a little boy and I used to watch the little rascals, and they were all, you know, 8 and 10 years old, and they would put on plays, and they were always a disaster. That's what televised golf is to me. It's like watching the first rehearsal of a third-grade play (laughs) when everything goes wrong, except it's not funny, it's sad. One of the most interesting things about today's landscape in media is the uh, availability that all of these folks that we mentioned uh, you can just get in touch with any of them. That's how you and I connected, and that's through via social media. You know, what are your thoughts on social media these days? I mean, it, you can literally reach out to anybody that you see on television if they have a Twitter account, if they have a Facebook account, and have a conversation, much like Amanda Balionis and and others. Is is that a good thing for for media? Well, I mean, Twitter was tricky for me because usually if I take on something new, I get it right, right at the beginning, right from my very first TV or radio show or long-form print article or making commercials or infomercials and things like that. But Twitter was difficult because I thought, okay, I'm going to try this new, I'm going to do a different character. I always think that I'm doing characters when I do shows and who's the character today. And so... I tried to set up this character who was kind of a tough guy, but it came out wrong, and I came out like a jerk, and it came out rude, and it didn't come out right. It took me a really long time to figure it out, which I was really sorry for. But by late August of 2018, I finally figured out the character I wanted to play on Twitter, which was to be as interesting as I could, to do as much interesting golf history when appropriate, and to literally shoot everybody between the eyes who wasn't up to the task of dealing with me. You know, anybody that's stupid that came along or said something silly, I shoot them right between the eyes because that's my Twitter sniper persona. But now I try to do it in a way that's not offensive. Now I may upset the guy because I'm going after him, but now I'm watching my language and I'm watching my tone, and I'm trying to make it funny for people like, you know, this whole thing I've got going now where Brandel Chambly and Donald Trump are doing things in Space Force One out in outer space and, <laughs> you know, that, that they just built the golf course and Trump hit one over the universal space wall that he and Brandel bit, uh, built and it, it caught a space current and the ball went all the way to the sun and they watched it explode together right along with E.T., Donald Trump, E.T., and Brandel Chambly. And they saw Donald's Trump go out of bounds, catch a current, explode in the sun, and Brandel proclaimed that the greatest shot that was ever hit. <laughs> Who would be the fourth in that foursome with Donald Trump, Brandel, and E.T.? Uh, oh, boy, that 
pretty much. Well, I'd have to think about that one because <laughs> you know it's such it's such an incredible threesome right now that I don't really know that I've got anybody who can kind of fill that fourth role. Maybe maybe Rudy Giuliani because you know my favorite Rudy Giuliani since after before he disappeared completely from the face of the earth a few weeks ago was when they said to him, "So Rudy, let's just suppose." that Donald Trump did every single one of these things that he's accused of and that he committed all of this criminal activity, then what? And Giuliani goes, who cares? And you never saw him again. So, <laughs> you know, so I might put Rudy up there. I'm just worried about those false teeth, that bridge on the top that might fall out. And I wonder why he couldn't afford the dentist to do the bottoms. I mean, why would you have white on the top and black on the bottom if you knew you were going to be on camera? So that was a curious decision. I was going to send him a little money to do the bottom half and the recommendation of a dentist in New York City, but, um, you know, he's so hard to find now because they've got him buried, you know, with all the prisoners down at Guantanamo. <laughs> that may be true. You never know. I want to go back to what you mentioned about Brandel Chambly, a, a man that I would love to follow on Twitter, but he's blocked me as, mil as well as thousands of, of others. Uh, you talk a lot about the uh, the golf distance debate. We've talked a lot about that here on this uh, on this podcast as well. Listeners to this show know how I feel about it. Your stance on the golf ball distance debate is is the ball flying too far, Peter? Yes, it's completely ridiculous. It's the only sport you know that doesn't have regulated equipment in the major leagues. I mean, you know, if you took a player in any other sport from a hundred years ago. You know, Babe Ruth would be just fine today in Yankee Stadium. He would totally get the whole thing. It would look exactly the way it looked then, except the clothes in the stands would look different. So, you know, and you take a tennis player from 100 years ago or a football player or Wayne Gretzky or anybody who's ever played any sport, and they would recognize the sport. Nobody would recognize this one. I mean, you know, even look at Sam Snead, who died at the beginning of this century, and Gene Sarazen, who died at the end of the last one. It's only 20 years, but yet... The game has completely changed since then, and, 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 and I've got a real problem with it because, you know, the guys are only using, you know, less than half their set over the course of a week. They're only using five or six clubs. When, when I play golf, I use pretty much every one of my clubs every time I play, and I'll bet everybody else who shoots between 78 and 95 does too. You use every club every time. You know, and the guys, you know, prior to this explosion in distance, which is 99% equipment-related, used to hit the ball distances that 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 still fit the field of play. I mean, there is zero chance I'm watching Cameron Champ for the next 20 years. I hope I live that long, but I'm not watching that. I'm not watching anybody hit lob wedges. Dustin Johnson, when he won in Hawaii in 2018, I believe it was, averaged 86 yards for a second shot on par fours. That's a lob wedge. Mm -hmm. The rest of the field averaged 115 yards. Well, that's a sand wedge or a gap wedge. I'm not watching that. That's not anything. That's not anything at all. And if the answer is that you're going hack out rough, well, that's preposterous because Mrs. Tinkowitz can hit the five-yard pitch out. Anybody can hit the five-yard pitch out. And Mrs. Tinkowitz just started playing last Sunday. I saw her first lesson. But she could hit the five-yard hack-out shot. That's not a shot. That's not in anything. And if you hack it back to the fairway and you're a good player, you're going to knock it on the green somewhere on your next shot because now you're back in play. Or you're going to put it somewhere around the green where you can get it up and down for your bogey. Or maybe you'll hit a good shot and therefore have gotten it up and down for par. But you want width. 
You want recovery shots. Brandel says recovery shots are a horrible thing. There's something wrong with him, quite frankly. I, <laughs> I, I used to respect him so much, but but he's 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 twisted and he's troubled, and uh, his veracity is really on the line. And it's clear he's being told to have certain opinions. And instead of being grown up enough to say, I'm not going to have any because I know there's a problem and I'm not going to lie, he just chose to lie. You know, and a bunch of them are. I mean, Ron Syrak and, and Steve Eubanks and Jim Nugent are all pretending that everything is fine. It's not fine. It's not evolution. It is a revolution. The ball just doesn't fit for the 200 players who play the PGA Tour in the majors. It fits for everybody else. And so it's completely it's a completely ridiculous discussion, and nobody knows how far the ball goes. I mean, when you know people say, "Oh, well, you know, everybody digs the long ball." Nobody knows. The only way you know is if they write the number on your TV screen. If you're at a golf tournament, you don't even see the ball leave the tee. You don't see the ball hit the ground. You don't see the ball in the air. You don't see any. You don't know anything. And if you go to the range and watch them hit driver, you don't know if it's 280 or 340. There's just no way to tell. So the only way to tell is if they write the number on your TV screen. That's not interesting to me. That's not anything. I don't want to watch anybody hit pitching clubs. I don't want to play golf and hit pitching clubs. I wouldn't play golf if that was the game at this point where you just hit drivers and, you know, which of your four wedges you're going to hit. What is that? It's not anything. I want to hit my hybrid. I want to hit my five iron. I want to hit my five wood. I want to have interesting carries. I want to have strategic decisions to make. You know, they don't have that because you can't do anything to the golf course if the equipment is is, is so outsized for the field of play, you can't protect or defend the golf course. And when you try to, you just ruin it. I mean, you know, pick Marion in 2013 for the U.S. Open. It's a wonderful golf course. It was a disaster. It was virtually unplayable. Some of the pins were on slopes that were so steep. I mean, even the 18th hole with Justin Rose hitting his three iron in there, and they had the pin on this the last part of the green, and I know the course well, and you, it's not a pinnable spot. And so he hits the shot with a three iron that lands just short of the green, trickles to the hole like Tiger in 06, 05 at the Masters Tournament on 16, gets to the hole, and then rolls off the green. They're hitting three irons, fellas. Get with the program. You just let the super set up the course. The USGA shouldn't even be allowed to be there, really, except as a spectator. You call the superintendent a year before. We're holding the U.S. Open at your course next year. Could you please set it up for, like, really tough day? Really make it fair, but make it really hard so that the guy who's playing the best this week, it'll yield to his brilliance and he can shoot one or two under. What is the USGA doing there? They don't set up golf courses. What do they know about Marion? The superintendent lives there. He breathes there. He lives with the golf course every day of the year. Nobody knows it like he does. Nobody knows how to set it up like he and his guys do. And a bunch of dopey guys from New Jersey come in who have literally no background in setting up courses, and they're telling one of the best golf course superintendents in the in the country had to set up his golf course? I mean, really. It's like going up to tell Santa how to work the workshop. He knows how to do it. You don't know how to do it. Leave him alone and just wait for the freaking presence. <laughs> you mentioned something, Peter, regarding the announcers on TV these days who say there is no problem with the golf distance uh, with anything. 
And yet we see a lot of these, these commentators and these personalities closely aligning themselves with golf equipment brands. Amanda Bellionis, for example, someone that you heralded as probably one of the best, if not the best right now in today's game, is closely associated with Callaway. Do you think that the brands are in these people's ears? In their ears, they're in their souls, and they're more importantly, they're right in the middle of their pocketbooks. That's all this is about. It's all whenever you see a situation like this, it always comes down to money. You know, Titleist threatened and may have acted on their threat to significantly reduce or completely uh, take away their spend on the Golf Channel if the Golf Channel even discusses the ball. So, okay, you don't want to lose the money, fine. But don't come out on the side where you know you're being dishonest and say everything is cool. It's not cool. You know, and every 90 days the manufacturers come out with a ball and they say it's the longest ball ever. So you go back enough 90-day periods, you pick the right ball and let them play that. It's just it's the most uncomplicated thing. And, and yes, they're all completely dishonest. I say it clearly, happily, unequivocally, not going to take it back. They've just become dishonest because they've told there's no paycheck if they get into the ball debate. Look at Jim Nugent and Global Golf Post. His guys won't write about it. Jim Nugent, you know, and he's not a complete idiot, you know, wrote that, you know, the ball only increased a half a yard from 2016 to 2017, so what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is the other 25 years that you've forgotten about within which that particular year falls. It's just completely dishonest because Titleist runs ads. They pay very little. I mean, they run a million ads, and they're doing it for basically free. And they said to Jim, you want the Titleist ads? You'll go ahead and lie and say everything is great. So what did he do? Decided to go ahead and lie and say everything is great. Now, for somebody like me, that just makes me so sick because, you know, for for whatever the reason, you know, turns out to be, I happen to be well-known for having stood up for the game. When Arnold and I first got together before the Golf Channel, we became great friends. After the Golf Channel got started up and uh, things looked like they were going well and that I was kind of going to take the lead on stuff, you know, I would, you know, Arnold and I would go out for like these father-son chats and, you know, and he would tell me, you know, basically what he expected from me, like my father, you know, would have, I wished he'd had done, but he died so young, we never had those chats. And so, you know, when I, when, you know, Arnold said to me, do you know what I expect of you? And I said, sure, you expect honesty and integrity and follow the rules and always do the right thing for the game. And I'm, and you remember this, Arnold, the game comes before you, then you, then you and me. So if it ever comes down to it, where it's we have to choose between one, two, and three, we always have to go with the game comes first. And he said, of course. And then, of course, when it came down to it, and he endorsed an illegal golf club, and I put the game above my friendship with Arnold, and I put the game above Arnold, well, you know, I became well-known for that, and, and, and people knew I lost my job over that. But quite frankly, it's turned out to be like one of the proudest things I've ever done because... You know, I knew what the consequences would be if I pressed the issue. And when Arnold had nothing to do with my firing, and he would never have fired me no matter what for sure. And so, but I knew what the consequences were with management. Um, but that didn't matter to me. I mean, the tell is, can you sleep? Can you make a decision and then sleep that night? And I've never lost sleep, and I've never woken up in the middle of the night going, oh, I can't believe I did that. Now, contrast it with this. One day I'm sitting with Greg Norman, and I said, 
How many times have you woken up in the middle of the night about the the majors that you didn't win? And he said, do you really think I've ever woken up in the middle of the night thinking, oh, my God, I, I haven't won the U.S. Masters. Oh, my God, I haven't won the U.S. Open. Oh, my God, I haven't won the U.S. PGA. I hate all that U.S. stuff. He said, do you really think I've ever woken up in the middle of the night in a sweat about that stuff? And I'd say, oh, yeah, not only do you, but you do it regularly. You've done it regularly, and it's never going to end. And he looked at me like, you little mother. He said, you know, <laughs> you're, just too, you're just too smart for your own good. But how could he not? How could that not be something you wake up in a sweat? But I never did. Now, I hated losing my job. That was terrible, and that was very painful for, for me and took me quite a while to get over. But, you know, I, I, I kind of came to the conclusion that there was sort of like three kinds of pain. There's the one that goes away quickly. There's the one that stays with you for a while. And then there's the one that never goes away because it's too indelible. Mine with the Golf Channel fell into the second group that it was painful for a while. And then, and then it wasn't painful. I, I was able to fully accept everything that happened and sure wished I was still doing the shows because you don't want to be denied the opportunity to do your work, particularly if you're really good at it. So that part was awful. But in terms of the way that I behaved and the things that I did, I'm proud of every single moment. I never did anything at the Golf Channel that I want a mulligan on. Not one thing, not ever. As time goes on, obviously, you know, people have those experiences, Peter, that you describe uh, with the firing, with moving on, and you continue to grow regardless of how old we are. What's next for Peter Kessler? How's life now? How are things going on in your world? Well, everybody goes, so, uh, Petey, uh, be nice if you, like, did something. And I said, well, what do you mean? I, I just did that whole Golf Channel thing. And they said, that was 100 years ago. I said, yeah, it was a lot of work. I'm resting. And they said, well, stop resting and make some shows. And I said, but, you know, I did radio for 10 years, and I invented the most popular golf club in the game, and I made – and they said, oh, that – they said, you could do all that stuff in your sleep. That doesn't matter. That doesn't count if it's you. The only thing that counts if it's you is if you do shows where you're on camera and you're doing your magical thing with whoever the guest is. The rest of it's nonsense. That's for other people. Fine. You wanted to prove that you could do that better than other people? Great. I don't know what your problem is that you think you would need to do that, but fine. And I would say, well, I thought I would just try each thing out, and the goal was to see if I could do it better than anybody else. I mean, that wasn't like a complicated thing, and it just turned out that generally I got it right. And so people are saying, okay, dude, let's go. So... Okay, so now um, I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to shoot a show next Tuesday, and I'm going to put it on YouTube. We're going to start a YouTube channel, hmm. and I'm going to cut a, make a whole bunch of 10-minute shows, and in some of them I'm going to use my golf channel stuff from the old days and work it in creatively where I can. But I'm going to start it off with a new concept. I mean, the important thing to me was – Okay, I already did the interview thing. I pretty much did every, you know, kind of configuration of that sort of thing that you could possibly do in every sort of format from printed golf magazine to radio to television to personal appearances and interview people. So I thought, well, all right, well, maybe I could do something else. And so um, I figured out the 10-minute show part because I figure handheld devices yield shorter attention spans and that then you shouldn't be on camera too long either. So get to it, you know, which when people send me their stuff to critique, which I do a lot of secretly, usually my main comment is get to it quicker, get to it quicker. Don't sit there, get, just get to it already. And so 
I thought, okay, well, maybe I could do three minutes of a rant, three minutes of what's going on, three and I, nah, that's not creative enough. So I thought, okay, you're going to do these shows alone. Nobody's done 10-minute shows alone, and you'll do it with video support and pictures. So what exactly are you going to do? So I did what I always do when I'm waiting for the thing to kick in, and it still kicks in, and I go smoke a cigar. And halfway through the cigar, as I'm sitting there, usually the idea comes. And if I get past halfway of the cigar, I go, what's going on here if the idea hasn't come yet? So then it dawned on me. I figured out exactly what I would do. I would do a series of different formats so that they weren't the same, so that each show could be unpredictable. We would do minimum air on-camera time, but enough to establish my personality and, and perhaps my a little bit of credibility. But... I was not not worried about the, the second part. I feel like I have the credibility, but a lot of people who haven't seen me, you know, because it's really, you know, the missus who said to me, I've been with the same woman basically since 1972, like 90% of the time. And, you know, she said, you know, you, you, you haven't, she said, you told me that story about the ball player once. She said, what was that? And I said, well, that was actually Joe DiMaggio. He was a center fielder for the New York Yankees. And somebody said to him really late in his career, you know, why do you still try so hard on every running play out in the outfield? And he said, well, because there might be people in the stands who've never seen me play. And, and Janet said to me, you know, there's a lot of people who haven't seen your work. She said, you know, they don't show it. And she said, you know, there's some stuff, you know, on, on the Internet and stuff. And she said, yes, you've done all this other stuff. She said, but, you know, she said, that's great. But she said, actually, she said, whatever. And she said, but what you really need to do is you need to, you know, she said, you figured it out once. Nobody had ever done the shows you did before. You figured that out. You know, you're still the same person. Why can't you just figure out some new shows and be on camera and do something nobody's ever done before? That's that's what you know how to do. That's your gift. So I started thinking about it, and I had been thinking about it, and so now I'm going to do it. Well, I know that we all look forward to seeing it, and certainly YouTube is uh, a place where people like to go to watch those short 10-minute videos. And so certainly wish you the best of luck. And we know it's going to be great, Peter. And, and I know that uh, you and I will talk more about it. If you're up for it, we'd love to have you back on the show in the future. Uh, Come on, I tell you what. I just tell you, on those, it's really, these new shows are really interesting because I totally set myself up because, <laughs> you know, here I am with my big mouth all over Twitter, you know, basically trashing everybody who's alive and now saying I'm going to do some new shows. You know, so I got like nine million people just ready to stick the dagger in, but I got news for them. They're gonna like it. They're just gonna like it. There's not gonna be any daggers. They're gonna go, Whoa. And if they can't go whoa, then I won't finish the show until it's whoa. But I've I've got the first one in my head and some of it we we've covered today. And I've got about 10 shows in my head, and I found this really nice young videographer who grew up watching me on the Golf Channel with his dad, and I couldn't find anybody. And I'm looking around online, and I'm sending notes to people, and this uh, fellow calls, writes to me, and he goes, is this a scam? And as soon as he said that, I knew I had my guy, and I wrote back and said, no, it's not a scam. He said, then when you, can you please call me so I can hear your voice? So I called him, and he went, whoa. <laughs> then he put his dad on the speakerphone. And then I realized that I had found my guy He's in his late 20s, watched all my stuff as a kid. Dad, my biggest fan, right up there with Sean, put me on speaker. I talked to him about what I was trying to do. He said, I'm definitely in. I said, so let's have lunch tomorrow. And I said, bring Dad. Just bring Dad, too. We'll all have lunch tomorrow. And so I got together with this great young guy, Joshua Ortiz, and uh, 
and he's going to shoot it, and he's going to edit it, and, uh, and I think together we'll get it done. So, so we, I have a big staff of one. I'm excited to see excited. the the final product. Uh, yeah, it's going to be good. We're <laughs> going to have some stuff up right away too. I I would say within two, I would say first week of December we've got a good chance of starting to put up content, and we're going to put up a lot of stuff. I've got. A lot of ideas, a lot of things I want to do, a lot of things that people haven't seen for a while. We're going to show, so I think uh, I, I, I think uh, I think I'm on to something. Peter, do you have some time to answer a few Twitter uh, questions that have come in from our followers? That's my whole deal is the Twitter stuff. I, you know, <laughs> the, the the thing with Twitter for me yeah. is the way that works is when I'm trying to work out a puzzle for a show. Sometimes I'm just sitting there waiting for, like, the next thought to to be the correct one. And I've got my phone, and my writing skills sharpen the more I do Twitter. And somebody's always got something either really nice or really obnoxious to say, and I'm happy to answer either one of them. So I find it extremely relaxing. People think – some people do this old man yelling at cloud, which is such a, uh, an old expression at this point, but not at all. It's, I, I enjoy it very much. I find it – amusing fun and relaxing and we we find you all the same things as well and so one of the the uh the common uh comebacks that you like to to throw out which i think is absolutely hysterical is the phrase dolt burger what is a dolt burger (laughs) it's exactly what you think it is exactly Uh, what you think it is fair enough fair enough and dunderhead i imagine is is somewhere in that same ballpark pretty much exactly what you think it sounds like it is fair enough Another question came in from a frequent contributor, at least to our site, or at least a listener, uh, Garrett Ford. Yeah. Which uh, golf movie sucked the most? Every single golf movie that's ever been made is is among the worst movies that have ever been made of anything of any kind ever in the history of film. Now, with that said, I think of Caddyshack as a comedy mm-hmm. that takes place in a golf setting, so that doesn't count to me as a golf movie so i enjoyed that and i set that aside because it's the setting was golf but the theme wasn't golf because it was just a comedy the only good golf scene that there's ever been in any movie in the history of movies is the scene with uh, 007 and goldfinger playing the final two holes of their match and the reason it worked was because it was recreational golfers looking like recreational golfers mm. that's doable what you can't do is that tragic thing they did with jim caviezel playing bobby jones mm-hmm. and caviezel had never swung a golf club including to the day of the shoot and he's going to play bobby jones i mean it's so crazy when when sean connery's son was going to produce tommy's honor i got a hold of sean and i said put me in touch with your son let me just be an unpaid consult. Let me just make sure he doesn't make any golf mistakes. And, of course, it was disasterville from the phony beards that look like a fourth-grade play that you put on and the parents come in. And then, of course, there was the ultimate disaster where uh, young young Tom Morris at about 16 or 18, well, it's probably 15 or 16, has what looks like a five-iron uh, loft club but it doesn't have any grooves on it. So he puts the ball 50 yards from a green with the pin up front, and he's got a terrible eye in the rough, and he hits the shot from 60 yards, and it goes past the pin, and it spins back down, 
which of course is, from a physics point of view, obviously completely impossible. So then, to just to to add disaster to the already sinking ship, he does it again and spins the ball back from 60 yards with a straight face club out of long grass. And thank God they had barf bags in the movie because I was able to relieve myself. I mean, you know, and when I watched the Bobby Jones film, I went with my two sons, and we were the only three people in the theater, and they kind of walked out after five minutes to go play video games and stuff. And I think I spent the whole movie throwing milk duds at the screen and screaming, <laughs> just screaming at the screen, saying that never happened. There's no such thing as that. That never occurred. He never played that. That never happened. I mean, they've got him in bunkers. Fairway bunkers 150 yards away from the flagstick with no swing, no shot, no way to clear the lip. Not only does he advance it, but he holds it. Mm. You have to really show him holding a shot that there was no way to advance to begin with. I mean, it was just absolutely so horrible. And that Kevin Costner thing with the wife beater T-shirt. I mean, give me a freaking break. <laughs> and in person, he's just a, he's the most conceited insecure uh, disaster interpersonally I mean when we went to uh, he one year he came to play in the Dunhill Links and he was on his honeymoon so we used to sit upstairs in the early years of the Dunhill Links over in St. Andrews during the week and everybody would be in there smoking and drinking Lee Westwood and Darren Clark and uh, Miguel Angel and everybody from the European side and because the first year they, they had won the, the Ryder Cup so Actually, the second year in 02. So, you know, so so uh, I'm at the golf tournament, and uh, one I'm sitting upstairs with some friends in the lounge, and Kevin Costner comes in with his bride of like 48 hours. So he stops and talks to Tico Torres, the drummer for Bon Jovi, mm-hmm. instead of walking over to the table where his wife has now joined us. And he sits and talks to Tico for way too long before coming over. And so we entertain his wife, and finally he walks over and goes, Hi. I'm Kevin. It was just disaster, Bill. So the next day, he goes to get a massage, and he propositions the masseuse. And the next morning before the tournament even started, he, who was on his honeymoon with his bride, who propositioned the woman giving him a massage, were thrown out of Scotland. It was fantastic. Wow. that's uh, there's, there's probably more to that story, too, that I'm sure you and I could chat about <laughs> at another time. Uh, Steve Elling. Another uh, journalist, uh, formerly of many places, uh, I think he currently writes for The National. He has a question. Uh, he wants me to ask you something about an interview you did with Phil Mickelson a few years back where, I guess, Phil ate two or three hamburgers in one sitting. Is that true? Uh, well, he didn't lack for appetite. I mean, <laughs> that's a definitely. We did the interview. This was a very cool one because... We did the interview, I can't believe I remember any of this. We did the interview in December of 03. So he would win his first major in April of 04. And, of course, we talked about the majorless streak to that point. So the issue comes out in March, and then Phil wins in the the next month. So the timing of the article is perfect. And even to this day, that interview is the most reproduced interview ever in golf magazine's history and the one that's received the most impressions even even right to this day but he did pack it away because we met in a hotel suite and he pretty much ordered everything off the menu (laughs) 
Yeah, he. Uh, I don't know about the three cheeseburgers, but I think if we added up the calories of all of the treats, it definitely was a three cheeseburger total. I mean, and the other thing was, he said, I've been doing some judo, and I said, that's really interesting, Phil. So he just, just comes over, just lifts me up, twists me into a freaking pretzel over his head, and sets me down on the couch in the living room. And that's when we started the interview. Now, the really interesting thing about that interview was I had not pushed the tape recorder, and I had not done interviews with a recorder ever because I was always on TV. This was the new thing for me. So, you know, so we're eating lunch, and I didn't have the recorder on. But that's when he said Tiger's the only player good enough to rise above the inferior equipment that he's stuck with. Hmm. And I remembered the line, and when we broke up the, the meeting that day, I wrote it down. And I included it in the interview. I didn't think it was going to be that explosive, but I knew it was really interesting. So I had never done a print interview before. So I didn't know you don't let the guy who you interviewed see the interview in print. But I thought, well, I'm going to let him see it. So I sent it to Phil, sent it to T.R. Reinman, his PR guy. And they both wrote back, oh, great, PD, love it, PD, super PD. And then, of course, the thing came out about the inferior equipment and the guy head of Nike called me and goes, you know, you're, you're, you're a jerk. And I said, look, I'm not the one who said it. And I said, and he wasn't really referring to Nike. He was actually doing something more metaphysical, which was tiger is stuck with golf clubs. Golf clubs are not good enough for him to be able to do what he can do. He meant it more like that as opposed to a knock on Nike, but it didn't come out that way. And that's why none of us, when he said it at lunch, ever looked at each other and said, just forget that line. <laughs> I mean, no, we never thought anything about it because we understood the context. It wasn't a criticism of Tiger or his equipment. It was actually saying how great Tiger really was, but it just didn't come out that way. Those two men you mentioned are going to be locked in, a, uh, in the match in Las Vegas. Are you going to be watching? No, I will probably be locked into uh, hitting pitch shots out at the golf course. So I'm not, yeah, I can't, I'm not into the match. I don't think it's interesting. I, you know, I, I know that they're both trying to do all the smack talk and everything, but it's all tired lines at this point. You know, they're not thinking of original stuff. And Phil's not quite as funny as he thinks he is on the, you know, just off the cuff. And, that's not Tiger's real personality unless he's alone with you and then he might give you a hard time. But his act, his public acting persona is not one that he's particularly comfortable with. I, I, I don't like anything about it. And, of course, I, I think that Tiger will, will win. Now, it's only 18 holes, so, of course, anything can happen. Nobody knows how anybody's going to play over 18 holes. But Tiger's been playing better golf than Phil, who's been playing a little bit more like me. So... I would think that based on Tiger's summer, if he's still in good form, that he that he ought to play well and that Phil will be a little bit wilder than Tiger, who seemed to have fixed his driver's well. So I expect Tiger to win, but I don't expect me to watch. Fair enough. I think many, uh, many people agree with you on that, Peter, as with many things. Ladies and gentlemen, that was the great Mr. Peter Kessler. Peter, we'll do this again in the future. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, well. I'm delighted, and it's great to be with you, and I thought the questions were really interesting, and actually I pretty much didn't expect any, so that's always good. I really like to be surprised and have to think up something on the spot, which gives me a great deal of pleasure, and you're very, very good at what you do, and I thought you handled this great, and, and I can totally understand how people are saying really nice things about you as a host, uh, as somebody who comes up with good questions, 
as somebody who knows how to follow up appropriately, who knows how to make the guest feel good. So I would, you know, from my point of view in terms of your work today, I thought it was a rousing success, and I just hope I held up my end and that together that uh, people will be really happy with what we've done, and I will come on any time that you like. You've got my number. Just dial it any time you feel like it. Really appreciate that, Peter, and I hope you have a great holiday. Best to you and your family. Yeah, same to you and your family and your friends for healthy holidays and good wishes for the New Year's and uh, prosperity and happiness and health and all good things to all of you. 